Hello and welcome back to Equity, a podcast about the business of startups where we unpack the numbers and nuance behind the headlines. I'm Natasha Mascarenas, and this is our Wednesday show where we niche down to a single topic, think about a question and unpack the rest. This week, we're asking, can Tiger's second act live up to its first? I'll tell you more about what that means. But first, let me introduce Alex, who is joining me from New Orleans. Alex. Uh, I am indeed. It turns out that my internet here is good enough to do both video chats and recording at the same time. I'm hype. And also, I just want to say that I've consumed 60,000 calories worth of carbs in the last 48 hours, and I feel kind of trash. Actually, <laughs> <laughs> Wait, actually, yeah, I didn't put together that you're going to your happy place where there's amazing beignets and donuts and sweets. Oh, uh, yeah. You must be in heaven. I, I am. And like, I'm just eating all sorts of hilarious things while I'm here. And New Orleans is a place where you feel good feeling good if that makes sense. Like it's a okay. happy place inherently. And so I just keep doing things like, sure, I can have, I can do another hot dog. We're at a place called dad dog. Let's do it. And then today I woke up and I was like, oh yeah, pain. All right, cool. <laughs> like, I, oh. <laughs> errors have been made, <laughs> but all that aside, we are talking about something that I'm really stoked about today. Cause it's kind of like a, a bringing together of so many themes and topics from the show in the last couple of years. I think it's going to be great. Yeah. It's like one of those throat clearing episodes that also happens to mash both of our worlds together, yes. which is like what happens when late stage goes early stage. And as we've been talking about on the show for the past few months now, the markets have changed and they're getting recorrected and late stage companies as a result are also experiencing a little bit of a chill. So we're seeing traditionally late stage focused funds go early stage and Tiger Global, for those who don't know, is the one that we've always paid attention to for really disrupting late stage capital. And it recently started to go more early stage. Yeah. When I think about Tiger Global, I mean, thinking about the last year, and we'll get into some data in a little bit. I just think about rapid fire 50 and $100 million rounds in any startup software company that had a pulse. And instead of that, there seems to be kind of a dramatic shift towards a more early stage lens. But I think, Natasha, we might want to start with a little bit of history and walk people through how we ended up with almost like billion dollar funds to begin with and how the capital world changed for private companies that brought us to Tigers 2021, which was epic. Yes. No, totally. This part of the show is where we're really going to handhold those of you who maybe have been reading all the headlines, but just have lost track of how much has really changed since 2012. After we do the venture shakeups, we'll kind of explain why we're asking this question today of all days. And then we'll end by looking at Tiger's disruptive ideas and see how they would look if they are going to pivot to be more early stage. And I also want to give a shout out to Berber Jin, who has done some amazing reporting on Tiger Global for the information. Yes. I feel like their reporting has influenced a lot of my understanding. So huge, huge ups to them. And also, I think they just reached their one-year anniversary at the information. So talk about an impactful first year, Berber. Well done. Seriously, if you ever want to work with me, let me know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, come come to DC. We'd love to have you. Okay, uh, now that we're done hiring people... <laughs> Or trying to, at least. chance we can. <laughs> no, let's, let's start with Andreessen, because how could we not? Yes. There was a time when raising a $1 billion fund or $1.5 billion fund was a huge deal. Oh, yeah. That was now, I guess, a decade ago. Alex, do you remember, I guess, what that first $1.5 billion fund from Andreessen really meant for venture? 
Yeah. So I think this was fund three from the firm. This was back when they were a much smaller concern. You know, they didn't have crypto funds. They didn't have biotech funds. They didn't have 88,000 partners at the company. It was a smaller operation of Andreessen and Horowitz. So it was a a different time, different era. And when they put together this $1.5 billion fund, my recollection of the commentary at the time was that everyone was like, what are they doing? Because at the time, venture capital rounds were smaller, valuations were Mm -hmm. lower, exits were a little bit less frequent, I want to say. And um, the expectation of value creation was just more constrained. And so people were concerned that they would not be able to return four or five billion dollars in gross returns to their investors to make the fund kind of a venture capital style return. That all feels very cliche now because one and a half billion dollar fund is like you wake up, you see that over breakfast and you don't stop chewing. But at the time (laughs) it was revolutionary and they were famously paying more for startups. They would say things like, hey, you know, go out there and get whatever term sheet you want and then bring it to us and we'll beat it. And they were very aggressive and it bought them access to a lot of deals that they may not have otherwise gotten into and they kind of made it work. So at the time, revolutionary, but uh, now kind of standard. Yeah, I mean, and I think maybe a few years after raising that fund and continuing to raise their funds, I feel like their second jolt to the ecosystem was really providing services versus just capital. So we all have the running joke of them hiring everyone and anyone these days, but they also changed their firm to be a financial advisor instead of a venture capital firm, which changed the way that their LPs needed them to invest. So maybe in 2012, it was like a bet on the future of VC. Starting a few years ago, it was kind of Andreessen being like, we're going to do everything in (laughs) startups and tech. It's funny how many different things Andreessen has changed inside the venture game from fund size to the services, not just like push, but real like crusade into services and then into the uh, different kind of style of financial management. And then also I would say into building increasingly aggressive crypto funds on a rapid fire basis. And Dreesen has been constantly tearing up the script, which is kind of good because you would expect that venture capitalists would be doing that. Ironically, many of them are very conservative. That's a different story. But someone who was not conservative was SoftBank. And they kind of came along in 2017 and put together the Vision Fund One, which wasn't a one and a half billion dollar vehicle. It wasn't even a $10 billion vehicle. It was roughly a $100 billion capital pool sourced from around the world. And it made Andreessen Horowitz Fund uh, Three look like a child's play. Like, I mean, Vision Fund was Vision Fund was nuts. It was everything that kind of like made Andreessen stand out, like aggressiveness, investment size, valuations, but just turned up like the 30th degree. Like it was, it's hard to even describe to people how weird it was to watch them cutting $300 million checks to companies that we like wouldn't considered to be even traditional venture targets. Yeah, totally. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but it feels like they even went international faster than any other U.S. firm did. Obviously, part of the reason is because they aren't based in the U.S., but I think they also shone such a spotlight on other opportunities all over the world back then and making those companies unicorns. And at that time, unicorns were still rare. So I really like... Rarer. Rarer. I wouldn't say they were. I think by 2017, we were into the unicorn era in which the valuation point had become more common. But you're right. Compared to 2021, relatively sparse. But I think compared to 2012, they'd become, uh, oh my gosh, I'm I'm talking out my butt now. But like more of an asset class is kind of how I think about it. No, I'll take that. I think that that's fair. SoftBank, my like relationship and understanding SoftBank is this vision fund splashed onto the scene. It was part of every headline. And that became something we eventually became numb to until maybe a few months, six months before the pandemic, we started seeing a lot of SoftBank's investments start to have layoffs, start to cut costs, and just that belt started to tighten. And I think that that happening before a pandemic was so jarring at the time. We had never, I had never covered layoffs. I was working with you at Crunchbase at the time. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, just thinking back to the catalyst point, I think we saw kind of the natural termination of Vision Fund's aggressiveness in the implosion of the WeWork IPO, which is now part of the historical record. It's part of television shows and books and all that. But at the time, it was a dramatic shock because we had seen the Vision Fund be aggressive and get a lot of attention and nary, I might even say plaudits, frankly, for what it was doing. And uh, it turned out that a lot of its deals weren't brilliant. They didn't see around corners that we couldn't see around. Some of them were just bad. We saw a retrenchment and we've seen the Vision Fund too take on a different focus, if you will, smaller checks, more frequent checks, but also a lot more sopping money versus money from the Middle East and a correction there, or as you would say, a re-correction. And then came 2021, which was kind of the year of Tiger. Yeah, enter Tiger Global. And I'm surprised, honestly, that we all were excited by yet another mega fund doing fast rounds and making a ton of companies these highly valued more than unicorns at that point. But it got attention anyways. And I think it was really due to the fact that Tiger Global had this hands-off approach where, yes, it was doing things fast, but it was also after the kind of due diligence process, it was kind of hands-off with these companies and giving them an unlimited pool of money to access. It's kind of the reason they won a lot of deals based on what I talked to founders about. And it really takes us through the pandemic. Tiger Global being as aggressive as it was during a time where tech companies could at one point have gone either way, only solidified us paying attention to them more. Oh, absolutely. And what's really funny is I went back to the historical record and I knew that Tiger wasn't new. And I know we said at the top of the show, this is their second act. I mean, we're being a little bit facetious. Obviously, they didn't just come onto the scene. This is not really (laughs) the second inning. But from our context of caring about them at TC, this is kind of act two that we're going to get to. But if you look back to their historical investment cadence, they did an increasing number of deals through 2011, 2012, all the way to 2015. And then it really decreased for a couple of years. And then 2018, 2019, Tiger kind of gets back into the game. We're seeing up to like 20 deals per quarter from them. And then the pandemic hits and they slow down. And then in Q2 of 2020, they really kind of reached a nadir, I think. Is it nadir or is it nadir? N-A-D-I-R? I, I, I write this nadir? word a lot. Nadir, nadir? I think. Huh. Anyways, that thing, they reached a low point. There you go. A local minimum if you're into calculus. (laughs) And then from there, they skyrocketed up to about 120, 140 deals per quarter. Wow. So the acceleration really has been relatively recent, even if Tiger has been around for a while, which Natasha, you know, goes to say that they won those deals with doing pre-diligence, paying a lot, and also leaving companies alone. And that model just worked. Right. I mean, it kind of combined a little bit of both what Andreessen and SoftBank taught the venture ecosystem. From what I've heard, a lot of Tiger's benefit, other than being capital, is providing a ton of services. So it's not going to pretend to be your best friend and it won't take a board seat, but it might help you with talent or recruitment. And then from the SoftBank playbook, we just saw what it means to have fast speed when writing checks and creating a big fund and continuing to create big funds. So I was pretty shook by Tiger's activity. And I mean, I will say, I think part of the reason Tiger did stand out to me was at the same time it was growing, we saw SoftBank Vision Fund 2 struggle to get funding. SoftBank Vision Fund 2 started to get funding only from its existing partners, so they're self-funding it, which could be positive depending on how you want to spin it. But to the average person, it was like, you can't convince LPs, so everyone to Tiger, it seems like. Well, look, there's a lot of nuance to that, as you mentioned, so we're going to ally to that a little bit. But the difference between, I think, the Vision Fund approach and what Tiger did 
did was that Tiger seemed to be a bit more focused on fundamentals. The reason why I say that is I talked to Josh Fabian from Metify, a startup that raised a, uh, I think it was a Series A earlier this year, and Tiger led. And so I talked to him about how this round came together. And I was just going back through my notes from that chat before we hit record. And I'm just going to kind of paraphrase this so it kind of yes. makes sense. But like essentially, he was introduced to Tiger by one of his existing investors, someone at uh, Forerunner. He talked to them on a call. And then the next day, they had another call. And then immediately... They were doing a deep background check of all of his friends from like back in the day. They talked to seven of the coaches from the Metify platform. And so they went quick, but they were really digging into kind of like traditional diligence, if you will. Whereas I feel like the Vision Fund One group was kind of like, we're going to find crazy people and we're going to give them tons of money and then they're, they're going to change the world. And that kind of goes one or two ways. You either get Elon Musk or Adam Newman. And uh, they got more <laughs> Adam Newmans than Elon Musk's. <laughs> And it's like, I, I don't even want either, technically. I, I can't imagine being in their decision-making team. <laughs> I, I mean, look, I, I hear you. But also, if you could go back in time, would you not put money into SpaceX? I would. Because SpaceX yeah, is dope. Fair, fair. Yeah. I think the last dynamic is kind of the reason they were winning on both somehow performing really fast, but also doing deep due diligence, is that they did outsource their due diligence, which yes. again is kind of contrarian. Every investor is telling you that they are going to be more important to you than a marriage. So <laughs> the fact that Tiger was comfortable as a hedge fund, of course, to outsource its due diligence to McKinsey also kind of changed things up. Not just McKinsey, but that's the thing that I've heard the most from investors. Sure. And I'm just caveating what you're saying so that we don't get lots of emails from annoyed people. But you're dead on. They had a kind of pre-diligence. They would often hire people, dig into a sector, go through companies. And by the time they showed up to talk to Natasha Incorporated, they already knew all about you. And that's why they could move so quickly to write a check. And I think their move into pre-diligence, more aggressive capital disbursement, and also just preempting everybody was really the theme of 2021. However, when we get towards the end of the year, it does seem like everything changes. Yeah. So this this is really when we start going back to the core question we're starting the show with, which is, can Tiger's second act live up to its first? Since the beginning of 2022, we've seen through a lot of stories through Berber is Tiger really changing its mind on how it wants to invest. It's no longer pursuing big, private, late-stage tech deals. And it recently dedicated $1 billion over the next few years to back early-stage tech funds. Reading between the lines there, we're seeing Tiger's stamp of approval go for the early-stage, leave the late-stage, which I think just isn't interesting topic in and of itself absolutely as to why one and then two everything we just talked about alex how does that change things because tiger really made everyone else raise crazy big funds but now it's it's running back so is everyone else gonna run back um maybe we start with what you think made tiger start to go early and then we can talk about how it's playbook scales yeah absolutely so last year if you put let's say it's january of 21 and you lead a 50 million dollar series c into a SaaS startup that's doing pretty good not like slack but you know better than average. You could kind of expect that that company was going to raise $100 million in between one and six months. That was just kind of the climate. It was crazy. Everything was getting marked up. Capital was flowing. Valuations were very high. And also in the stock market, we were seeing the value of software revenues, which is kind of a core substance that startups really build, get increasingly valuable. And so, you know, it was pretty easy to make these large bets on companies because you could see exit valuations that were very, very strong. And also there was so much capital going around. It was kind of de-risked or it felt that way because there's always going to be another check. And then basically that fell apart in the last couple of months. The stock market really turned 
and it's seen that sentiment shifted. And now we have seen a dramatic repricing of the value of what startups build, which is often software revenues. And I don't think the old model works. And so to see Tiger go from where they were and their old posture, if you will, to their new stance, to me is an indication that they are tracking quickly the changes in the wind. And yeah. I would say with more nimbleness than the average VC who loves to tell me things like, oh, you know, the stock market, we don't watch it. And I'm we like, don't, oh my God. I'm, I'm like, like, word. <laughs> I'm like, if you're not watching it, your LPs are, so you definitely should. Yeah, also, your, your LPs are using stock market money to give you money. You should be paying attention to this. But there, yeah, <laughs> and there, there's a good argument. Like, if you're a seed investor, your deals won't exit for 10 yes. years. So, blah, 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 blah. But, like, you know, series A and on, this stuff matters. And by the way, uh, Natasha, I have some data from Carta all about changes to American startup valuations from series A through C that backs up my points. So if you don't agree with me, too bad, you're wrong. <laughs> Wait, when do we get to see the data? Well, I was supposed to write about this morning, but I forgot. So I wrote about something else instead. <laughs> we'll so, link it in the show notes. Well, it's I'll, actually perfect. I'll do it tomorrow. It's perfect for you to bring up Carta because we saw Tiger Global invest in its competitor this past week, AngelList. So it co-led a round for AngelList Venture, a 100 yes. million series something round. And I don't mean series something as if I don't know. They don't know what round it is. <laughs> Sorry, I'm not That's over the it. most 2022 thing ever. <laughs> what round is it? Well, you know. <laughs> But it really, I think, validates what you're saying, which is Tiger's looking for a window into the early stage. And it is looking to bring some of its index-like mindset into its processes in a more, I guess, risk-averse way. So AngelList right now is really like this data mine where it tracks a lot of pre-seed and seed activity. It has a bunch of emerging fund managers. And so really, it investing in AngelList, it made so much sense for the company if it's going to really triple down on early stage. Now it just has this data source to tap into in an unlimited sort of way. And, and when I asked AngelList about this, they really said kind of, they kind of agreed. They were like, this cements our relationship with them because it's less of like, why did we raise money? It's more like we want Tiger on our team. Yeah. So a strategic round versus a traditional venture round, if you will. No sin in that. We've talked a lot about corporate venture capital money in general, and this is kind of like a weird version of that to some degree. But if you want to have more visibility into early stage, if you want to have a early barometer on trends, who's raising, who's hot, who are people talking about, I would absolutely tie into AngelList. I mean, it makes very good sense to me. My question though is, what do you do if you're very accustomed to writing very large checks very quickly, and suddenly you're going to write more speculative because they're earlier stage checks to smaller companies? You know, it does feel like a very different process. And so even if you have Angelist on your side. Yeah. If you're used to kind of writing a $15 million check to a SaaS company because you like their net dollar retention, how does that translate to a SaaS company that has one customer? You know? I, like, I, yeah. Uh, I know. I and I think this really gets into like, how does their playbook scale long term? And one thing Angelist did that I think was controversial, but really interesting is that they created a fund that's only backing startups based off of their hiring velocity. So like just how many candidates they're able to hire. So wait, I'll pause, okay. actually. Um, yeah, because my, my brain just explodes. I didn't know that. And um, I probably read it and then forgot it. So the pace at which a startup is able to attract talent yes. is the barometer that they're choosing. That's it. It's That's hands off. Brilliant, it's like, actually. Yeah, it's really interesting. And that, that news happened a few months ago. I wrote about it. It was interesting at the time. And now that Tiger's involved, I'm like, this is kind of like Angelist was like <laughs> dogfooding Tiger Global vibes into what they were doing. They were doing a hands-off approach that was based on one signal, still risky, but would still get them checks. 
what they said, it was really similar to how Tiger approaches things, which is they were trying to not give founders headaches on all this like, let's schmooze and talk for four hours on Zoom and try and get data off of your body language. If you know how to hire people, we're going to give you money and people appreciate the simplicity. So now Tiger coming in, maybe that's a similar playbook that they'll take. Yeah. I mean, should we explain why hiring velocity is a really fun metric to index on? Yeah, let's do it. Because I think it really could be something we see Tiger prioritizing in the coming months. Yeah. It's also indicative of where the market is. And the whole point of this really is to use Tiger Global's change in investing cadence to explain the changed world, if you will. So they're kind of like the vehicle. And so here's part of the road. Hiring is very hard as a general point. And there's a couple ways you can make hiring easier. If you are a very charismatic CEO, very convincing CEO, someone who has a lot of faith and conviction in what they're doing and why, hiring is easier. In fact, a lot of CEOs come in to help close candidates that companies are worried that they won't actually be able to get without bringing in the big guns. And so essentially hiring can be a secondary signal to having a vision, to having a view on the market that is resonating with essentially what is the CEO's first customers, which is their early employees. And so if you have a fast hiring cadence, Natasha, my guess is you can communicate, you have a clear vision, you're attacking a problem that people care about and are willing to invest their time and energy in. And so it's actually kind of a really fun way to think about company startup success, I suppose. Yeah, I dig it. I think so. I'm like... 70% excited about it. The 30% of worry I have on looking at hiring is like, it is only one signal. And sorry, I will do an asterisk and say that it's not necessarily how many people a company can hire. It's how many applications that company is getting. Still completely interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I think it still really tracks with what you're saying. Cause like hiring, even though it's one signal, it can be based off of a ton of other qualitative sorts of characteristics, but I just feel like it's an easy thing to bend or like, what's the word when I'm trying to say like influence, Um, influence, uh, adjust, adjust. Yeah. It's easy for like someone to like hack that. So that is one way we're seeing Angelus do it. It sounds like they'll do more stuff in that category. I hope they do because Clearly, it's an interesting conversation to kind of bring a hands-off mentality to early stage. So that might be one way we see Angelus start to bring their due diligence process. The other is I imagine that they're just going to start looking like a lot of other funds right now and focus on profitability. Is that like boring? (laughs) Well, I mean, I'm curious about what that means in an early stage context. You know, I mean, certainly there is a general, you're you're dead on. There's a general retrenchment towards fundamentals and kind of like revenue quality versus growth at all costs. And I feel like we've been dancing back and forth across that kind of divide, depending on where the wind has been blowing for 10 or 12 years now. So sure, we're in a slightly more risk off time period, but it's certainly not risk off to be putting tons of money into the early stage. In fact, it is almost a risk on stance, if you will. So I'm going to be very curious to see how the tuning of the Tiger model towards earlier stage investments and the general retrenchment towards more of a profit focused or really what we mean is less unprofitable growth model. That's a better way to put it. Because no one here is turning in gap net income as they scale through series B, or if they are, they're the only company in history to do that. And tell us at equity pond. (laughs) Equity pond at techcrunch.com. Not Berber (laughs) Jen at the information. Although, of course, we adore them. (laughs) I'm going to be very curious to see a couple of other things. One is the distortive effects of having this amount of money begin to focus more on the early stage market. We have some crunch-based data in our notes about how Tiger is not only taking part in more seed rounds than ever, but also leading them. And if you have a huge capital pool, you are just less price disciplined at the earlier stages because you don't mind spending an extra million dollars on a round because it just doesn't matter to you. Yeah, 
I think, so I, oh, sorry, please. No, I was just going to say like, even though we're seeing Tiger kind of lead rounds, which I actually remember them doing in a YC company, maybe two batches ago. One investor said she thinks that Tiger's going to start participating more. It's going to start looking like other venture oh. firms as time goes on because one, if you're new to early stage, maybe you do want to participate or you are more comfortable in taking different ownership percentages and just not having that same sort of bite that you used to have yeah. before, which I, I think would be interesting if we see Tiger start participating. It just is very different than what they used to look like. And that would be, I think, a healthy change if they're trying to go to a stage. So to summarize, Andreessen had a very interesting kind of like angle on venture and then became this kind of like behemoth Goldman Sachs-ish type thing on the private markets. Tiger had this really interesting approach and it's kind of moved towards a more traditional venture capital early stage approach. SoftBank stopped doing Vision Fund 1 things and kind of became a little bit more normal. So far, the only firm that we've really talked about that hasn't become more like towards the, the average point yeah. is Homebrew. Because that... <laughs> Which is an early stage fund that's going to be self-funding and kind of doing their own thing. But it does seem that over time, what was a standout kind of like trait of an investing group does seem to get kind of hammered down by, I don't know, the weight of standard historical business cycles, maybe is the way to put it. Reality. I'm so glad you brought up Homebrew because they are, yes, one fund, but I think we're going to see a lot more evergreen vehicles come out of venture in the coming months. Actually, SoftBank announced yesterday that they're turning their opportunity fund, which backs underrepresented founders, into an evergreen investment fund. And that really is just a way to say that they're going to start having like an uncapped, no minimum and no target return date sort of investment cycle going forward, similar to Homebrew. Oh man, I'm trying to pull off a Danny Crichton style epic joke with oh, involving the Stanford mascot, which is a tree, evergreen funds, and something oh, about California money, and I can't, I can't quite pull it together. Oh God, <laughs> it's like just um, like it's just like secret like signs everywhere. Everyone's going evergreen, and we're all like, "How nice!" And they're like, "It's actually a cult." <laughs> yeah, it's, it, there's no Illuminati, but there is Stanford. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. There it is. So We needed that. But I actually did want to bring up the evergreen bit. And I think that that could be another way we see Tiger start to look in the future. SoftBank, when I was talking to them yesterday, I said that every fund that they're going to do once they do like their proof of concept will go evergreen. Like, oh. I mean, I guess if you're investing, time horizon is infinite. Yeah, okay. I, <laughs> to me, it's it's interesting because to go evergreen, you have to have kind of one of two things as a firm. You have to either be a public venture capital firm, like we see in the UK, that recycles capital, or you have to be effectively independently wealthy, like the homebrew crew now are. And yeah. they can kind of fund their own thing. Benchmark, kind of the same. And Dreesen Horvitz, oddly enough, no. It feels like they're very busy raising newer funds in different areas, but I would much rather raise from an evergreen fund than not just because their LPs are more often than not themselves. And so with the time horizons are different, the pressures are probably different and people talk about patient capital, but that's probably the most patient. Yeah. It's kind of like a meet in the middle of what we talk about a lot here, which is venture capital incentives are just inherent to the asset class, but investors may look at that in different ways or put pressure on different ways. So I feel like even though there's like some downsides to evergreen funds, the instability of it or just like confusion from founders and like the general world, I think as we see a lot of these really big, well-known funds have to change up their game. Why not take a little bit of the pressure off. It's not that they've proven themselves so that they don't have to answer to anyone anymore, but once you are a Tiger Global, you probably could create any kind of fund and people would know your name and trust you with their cap table. 
for now. Oh yeah, I mean, like, like we're we're talking about the brand names at the top of the billing here. You know, we're not digging into the secondary, tertiary, and quaternary funds that aren't driving the narrative. Which is why we care about these companies because they are doing the most. I mean, Andreessen did change venture. The First Vision Fund did change venture. And last year, Tiger took so many like holy truths that were so built into the core of how people considered the venture model, and was like, eh, what if we just don't do any of that? And it was pretty good. And a lot of people had to catch up. And so I love seeing these heresies sprout. I'm just slightly disappointed when they go like, JK, now we're going early stage and we're going to be more participatory because it's less aggressive. It's less venture It's more standard. I would love for us to see Tiger surprise us or just honestly anyone change our mind on what early stage investing looks like right now. I feel like I can recite the process in my sleep now. And so similar to Angel is creating a fund that's only based off of one signal, would love to see Tiger do something crazy as well. And maybe the place we can end really looks at what do we think Tiger going to the early stage is doing for other early stage funds right now? Is it going to have the same impact it had on late stage funds, which now made everyone raise a billion dollar plus fund? Or is everyone just going to, is Tiger late? They're going to be like, oh, welcome to the table. (laughs) I think they are late to the early stage boom because we've been talking about firms going earlier and earlier for, I feel like a thousand years now. But here's one data point that I have. I can't answer your question because I don't know, but I can say when Y Combinator put together its new terms, including offering more money in the form of a safe with most favored nation status, a A lot of people are like, look, this is undercutting the early stage investors out there who are taking on the inordinate risk of putting money into these companies. And really, it's kind of hurting first-time fund managers, emerging fund managers, which are often more diverse than GPs at major firms. And that was just a little bit of money to some companies. Tiger is coming with its checkbook. And it can do 50 seed rounds for the price of one Series F it might put into a company that they thought was going to go public and now won't. You know, like, so the distortive effect here could be staggering, but we don't know from where we sit today. That's my take. I love that take. And that, I mean, I, I did want to end the show, but now I kind of want to like continue talking about the YC dynamic because people have yeah. not, people aren't like cheering for YC to be disrupted, but there has been so many years of people being like, the batches are so big. The dollar size is getting bigger. We just don't know how to make sense of it. And I think that like, now that Tiger is coming for YC's lunch, so to speak, yeah. it's like, that is like a jolt to the ecosystem that we kind of can now watch happen in real time. And I'm excited about that. I don't need YC to disappear. I think it's still a really interesting accelerator, but I do think it needs to be challenged. And I do think it needs to have a competitor. (laughs) Yeah, no, dead on to all that. And like there's Techstars and the group formerly known as Accelerprise, they rebranded, I forget their new name, but you're right. They are kind of alone. Here's what I'll say though. Some things are a tale as old as time. You know, late stage investors going early, tale as old as time. Y Combinator batches are too big. Tail is all this time. My favorite is like, if you go back and read, YC prices are out of control back in like 2012. And so, you know, maybe this is all just another turn of the cycle, but I will say if Tiger gets as aggressive as they might in the early stage, it could really change things. But we should shut up and then we will come back and talk more about that after the YC demo day, which is coming up. And then we'll see where the checks come from. And if Tiger does show up, there'll be new stripes in the early stage market. 100%. Just to kind of wrap people up on like a parting thought, it sounds like Tiger's second act is going to be eventful if somewhat predictable compared to how it kind of disrupted late stage capital. It does have opportunity with its new angelist window and just like its name and impact to win deals in a way that Sequoia and Andreessen have not been able to. So I am excited to see that. YC demo day is coming up in a few weeks, which will give us another data point to kind of compare and contrast to. And yeah, I mean, if you are raising from Tiger or pitched Tiger recently and ignored them or said no to their money, that is so interesting to us. So I will shamelessly plug 
us <laughs> to tell us at equitypod at techcrunch.com. But Alex, always a pleasure to talk through just this like such a niche world <laughs> that you somehow yes, get me so excited about every time we talk. About someone it. needs to talk about this niche world because it involves tens of billions of dollars and tens of thousands of lives. And you know, so sure. Are we talking about smaller things? Yes. Ukraine is happening. Democracy is crumbling around the world. Authoritarianism is on the rise. But we don't get paid to talk about that. We get paid to talk about this. And we do it as a service because we love it. And the markets are something we're always tracking. And that, I think, always <laughs> makes me feel a little bit better about my job. Everyone else, we will be back on your podcast feeds on Friday. Thank you yes. all so much. Talk soon. Bye. Bye. 